Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. This episode is a recording of a public event held on March 23rd, 2023 at the Minneapolis Central Library. Global Minnesota hosted the 2023 World Press Institute International Fellows, who shared key insights into global journalism challenges such as disinformation and censorship. We join the conversation in progress as the participants begin with a summary of the news landscape within their respective countries. Here is Global Journalism Spotlight, covering today's stories with World Press Institute Fellows. It's my actually first time in the USA. I have uh, worked with UN uh, media organizations like Washington Post when uh, the pandemic started and when my country, Sri Lanka, started going through an economic crisis, but um, it's my first time and my first winter. So, yeah, we enjoyed a lot in January. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the first few weeks was a little, first few days were a little difficult uh, health-wise, but I'm enjoying. I think I will love Minnesota than other cities because I feel that Minnesota is so homely. It feels so homely here. I think, I think it's a good thing. In Sri Lanka, we call it one nation, one country, that it's not so practical all the time. Uh, I think it's actually a, such a, I think it's, not, it's something I'm bringing back home. Hopefully my uh, editors, my leaders will listen to me. <laughs> and one thing I didn't like about USA so far is the food portions. Uh, as a country who is currently going through an economic crisis, hunger, Poverty. I would like the portion to be little, you know, smaller. <laughs> I don't like the wasteful things. Uh, I would like to talk about the story I did um, uh, about misinformation. I am mostly um, covering human rights violations, um, immigration, refugee issues, pretty much everything. But this story I want to discuss because I thought this is very interesting and maybe you have also heard something similar to this in the USA. Uh, you must have heard about these Easter Sunday attacks that happened in Sri Lanka in 2019 on Easter Day while people were having breakfast in hotels. More than 280 people died, including foreign nationals. So this attack number of attacks actually, were done by radicalized Muslim groups. This happened in April in 2009 in my country, one month after this attack. Uh, by the time the people who, Sri Lankan people, every religion, they were, they had developed some kind of hatred towards Muslim people because of the attack. One month after, a media organization in Sri Lanka, a Sinhalese, Sinhalese are the main language. A Sinhalese media organization published a story about a Muslim doctor, doctor who is a gynecologist, saying the doctor illegally sterilized more than 4,000 Buddhist Sinhalese women during cesarean surgery. This was very, uh, this went viral. This was only reported in Sri Lankan Sinhalese language. But this was picked by mainstream media and it became the hot topic, hottest topic ever. And doctors, professionals who never got surgery, they didn't even want to come out and say that this is not possible. 
because not only one person is available in surgery, the lab, theater, there are so many people like medical staff, supportive staff, nurses, when the surgery takes place. So nobody wanted to uh, find out what happened actually. Uh, so this was, this went viral and even people and women who got their surgeries done by this particular doctor came in line saying they didn't conceive after the surgery. Mainstream media, including uh, uh, TV channels, award-winning TV channels, they reported this entire incident saying this is true. We, as my newspaper, we went to meet the people, we went to meet the person who started the rumor. After having a conversation with him, who is also a senior doctor, we just felt that he is not genuine. You know, when you meet someone, you can tell that person is so, so genuine. So we started digging into it, and then we found out that they don't have uh, any you know, basis to the allegations. We started digging in, digging in, and then we started reporting it. But people didn't believe what we reported first because they were so into mainstream media, TV channels. That's what a lot of people do. They don't read newspapers nowadays. So they didn't believe what we said. And uh, the doctor uh, who was charged with illegal sterilization, he was arrested, he was jailed, his family had to go through a lot. They had to change their residence. The daughter, he had two daughters. Daughters had to go through a lot in their school. All that happened, media did nothing. Uh, two years later, uh, after police failed to find any evidence against him, he was released. He was acquitted from all the charges. He was paid all his salary arrears. Now he's a free man who didn't do anything. And the women who claim that they didn't conceive after surgery are now pregnant. Or they have their own medical issues like diabetes. So two years later this happened and the doctor is free. But he, the mothers are now regretting about what they did without thinking through. But media is still free. I just wanted to say that with evolving media, with advances in technology, our role as journalists are becoming more important. That important, however important our uh, roles are, even the media make mistakes. I just wanted to say how important this was, and after everything uh, was, after the truth came out, I just realized, why didn't you listen to me? Two years ago, we said that. So now only people are uh, talking about it. I just, we had a, we had a, we had the same public event a few days ago. And I talked about the same thing. I I posted a tweet post on my Twitter, and some Sri Lankan organization reached out, reached out to me saying, "You should talk about this in Sri Lankan high school as well." We had a session in Iowa High School, Muskegon High School, right? Now they want to talk about misinformation. Just wanted to make you uh, understand how important it is, uh, and also tell you that. Even journalists make mistakes, which are so fatal. Thank you. So, um, I think you are sad. Uh, in the last four years in Pakistan, uh, 
we've lost like 42 journalists, like that's like 10 journalists every year who are killed either by the state or by the people who take over. Uh, but journalism is stopped every year, you know, people may not get killed, but they get detailed, they get abused, they get clothing uh, on Twitter. But uh, my country it has a long history of journalism, and, and I can say that uh, the camera was on because that's a fact. And uh, there have been times when people have lost their livelihood, and I'm I'm actually amazed at the at the at the nuances of censorship in Pakistan. You know, there used to be a time when they would straight come at your door and, and intimidate you, say, "Don't do this." Then they would call an editor and they would you know scare them off. But now it has become really a structural, a very nuanced sort of thing. You know, they would not come after you. They would come after your organization. They would strangle hold their financial uh, inflows. Their financial ease of life will be, you know, threatened. Uh, their uh, ads will be taken. You know, most of our ads come from the government. Government would stop giving ads to that organization. The army would stop giving ads to that organization. We have a lot of cantonment areas where military uh, people live. They would stop the circulation of newspapers in those cantonments. So they would really hit you hard and you know make it really difficult for you. But at the same time, Pakistan is a very vibrant society and a very vibrant journalism. We have around uh, 140 TV channels, and out of those, 40 TV channels are news channels, and they enjoy a lot of ratings. People are very politically, supremely polarized, but politically, they like their news, they don't trust us, but still they do watch us. <laughs> So we have a very polarized society. Journalism, uh, it's difficult to be a journalist in Pakistan, but it is one of the most interesting jobs, and I would not have it any other way. That we, you know, to, to to stand in the face of adversity, knowing what can happen to you, and seeing a lot of journalists in Pakistan doing that. I'm not putting myself in that category, but there have been a lot of journalists who done that and who done who do this on a daily basis. But just uh, uh, coming back to your question about the U.S. So uh, I've covered the last two uh, presidential elections, 2020 and 2016, and I usually joke about it that uh, I was here when Donald Trump won. I was here when he was asked of the office. I just hope that I'm not here in 2022. <laughs> so, um, but uh, about the presidential elections and how the US media operates, uh, we had a, a we had an event like few days ago in Iowa, and I, I also raised a question over there. That, you know, some of the practices that I see in the US media. We, they really, you know, uh, confuse you. For example, endorsing a political candidate, having a news media which is extremely polarized. Uh, in my organization, we have come up with a social media policy for our employees. You can tweet anything, you can criticize anyone, but you can't defend anything. You cannot defend people who have the power. But somehow I see organizations like CNN, MSNBC, Fox, Fox defending Trump, MSNBC defending Biden, or uh, CNN defending Biden. I mean, journalists cannot be mouthpieces or defenders of people who have the power to defend themselves. And that's, I think, that's something that I really don't like by the US. Okay, I, I love the local media. I was in Grand Marais. I, uh, we interacted with a couple of journalists there, and I was amazed to see how much uh, credibility they enjoyed in the locality. People trust them. But unfortunately, on the local media, or the international media, rather, or the national media, I think, that's that's a really uh, that's a really scary thing for for a country like US to have a media that's that's extremely polarized and it's not uh, it's doing venom rather than facts. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
theme being preempted given the food portions thing, I also wanted to comment on that. I have never been able to finish any food that I order since I gave The portions are just so large for me to finish, but yeah, good for you guys. Um, um, yeah, with regards uh, press freedom in Nigeria, I'm lucky to work for an international organization. And I'm absolutely sure my story is different from someone who works for um, a privately owned media organization in Nigeria. Um, there have been cases of journalist intimidation, but I think at this point, the most important uh, or the number one challenge is bribery and corruption where government officials try to buy journalists or try to buy out stories and stuff like that. Um, it affects, uh, you know, the way stories turn out and it, it leads to polarization, like all of my colleagues will say. It really is one major problem that needs to be solved, but I don't know how. Um, as I said from the beginning, Nigeria is one of the most important countries in Africa and a lot of things go on in as much as we're wealthy, we have a lot of oil, the country is not really doing well. And our politicians have, you know, have not been good to the country and to the people of the country. Um, we just finished an election and it's one of the most um, craziest elections, but also the most, one of the most important. Um, it's important because this time the youth really took charge of a lot of things. They said it's our time now to oust the old people that have been ruling us for long. Nigeria is a very young democracy. We just, um, I think we're just 24 years old into democracy. But ever since we moved into uh, the democratic system of government, it's been one old person after another. And the youth said, it's our time now, we're going to do this. And there was a lot of hope, you know, that we were going to get it right. This time, um, there was a lot of um, mobilization and social media played a huge, huge role in that. And then, uh, in, in previous years, Nigeria used to have just two major candidates. In any election, there were two major political parties. But this time, we saw three, four in some places. And they were really, Nigerians were really hopeful that things were going to be better. But no, um, the elections came and there were a lot of logistic problems. The Electoral Commission was not ready on so many levels. Uh, we saw cases where voter election, yeah, the voter machine failed. We saw cases where the, the election officials were not present. We saw cases of ballot snatching. We saw cases, a lot of people were killed. Um, and, you know, the Electoral Commission thought it was ready this time around to use the electronic voting system, but it was not. So a lot of glitches in transmission of election. And at the end of the day, you know, it was 
it was just like any other election. The hope that it was going to be better or a good one never happened. But um, a winner was declared and the opposition, of course, has gone to court because they are challenging the election. But going back to what I said about social media playing a huge role this time around um, in this election cycle, the, the fact that social media is vital also led to a lot of disinformation and misinformation. And that's where I come in because I'm a disinformation journalist. So I covered the election focusing on disinformation and misinformation around the politics and the election. And I'll just talk briefly about a story that I covered where um, it was an investigation I did and I found out that political parties were hiring social media influencers to sway voters through spreading disinformation on social media. And um, what happened was I was on social media I always am on social media anyway. So um, I saw this messaging pattern, you know, where certain groups of people, and it just occurred to me that, you know, there might be something going on. And indeed, there was something going on. Um, political parties were actually paying large sums of money to these influencers as much as $40,000, $45,000 dollars to spread false narratives, false information about opponents on social media just for their own benefit. So in essence, they were trying to sway voters by pushing false narratives about them. And Nigeria is a very religious country, so religion, of course, was used to sway these voters using emotive language just to evoke and elicit as much emotion they would just start off, cook up a story about a candidate and use fake videos, fake pictures, unrelated videos, and people were jumping on these narratives and the quality was getting heated, you know, um, and that actually affected voter turnout in some areas because a lot of people felt there was going to be violence in different parts of the country. So a lot of people stayed back home and didn't want to go out to vote until eventually they realized that things were calm and they went out. So this investigation found out that um, the politicians were not only paying social media influencers, they were also offering them uh, political appointments when they win elections. And of course, you know, influencers are out to make money. The country, a lot of the people in the country are poor, so people jump on that. And we eventually found these people. We found whistleblowers from the political parties. They told us the tactics that they use, artificial amplification. They make narratives go as viral as they can by amplifying it through the use of bots, automation, uh, paying micro-influencers to get the message as viral as possible. Um, but yeah, it was a seven month investigation, which turned out very well. It made a lot of impact. And I'm happy that at least we made voters and you know people know and realize that these things are going on. And even to people that are not on social media, because the harm that this disinformation does, it, it spills offline. People tell, 
people that are not on social media. Look, this is what I saw on social media. And people believe whatever they hear and whatever they see on social media. So, yeah, that's uh, one investigation that I did. And uh, that's the state of my country at the moment. We just finished the, finished the election and a lot of the opposition parties have gone to court, but I don't think anything is going to be done. Very good, thank you. Thank you for your work. Just a quick reminder, uh, in about 15 minutes, we're gonna take audience questions. So if you wanna start thinking about as you're hearing some of these themes, be it disinformation or other challenges or opinions about portion sizes, lots of great fans. <laughs> I can see a boost in tourism there after this uh, session, but yeah, so just keep that in mind and we'll be collecting those in about 10 minutes. Go ahead. Yeah. So as I said earlier, I work for France 24 News TV channel and I'm a senior reporter, so I'm covering mainly uh, each important events wherever and whenever they happen. Uh, when I work in France, I don't really face lots of challenges or the challenges that I face are not in any way comparable with the ones that uh, I face in other more difficult uh, countries. Uh, I have dozens of examples uh, in mind. Uh, I would speak uh, very briefly, for instance, about some of, of these coverages in Sudan, let's say three years or four years ago when I was uh, covering the demonstrations after uh, the military uh, killed more than 100 demonstrators who were uh, defying uh, the authoritarian regime. The challenge was defying censorship and getting these uh, first-hand testimonies of uh, students. Uh, they were um, um, students that were tortured, uh, young that were wounded, or even families that were grieving the loss of their uh, loved ones. Uh, it's also about like not endangering those who are witnessing and. Uh, using these testimonies in, a, in the best way possible. Uh, another example would be about Lebanon when I covered uh, just a few hours after the explosion or uh, of the port of Beirut. It's more like a personal one, uh, seeing uh, his uh, home country, the capital almost destroyed. And uh, yeah, having also these testimonies of people uh, whose lives changed overnight. Um, in Ukraine, a few months ago, it was also a different story uh, with challenges proper to every war zones uh, with also, I mean, identifying with uh, all those who are suffering, but on another level, it's also about uh, defining and countering misinformation, Russian misinformation, but uh, not falling into the Ukrainian propaganda as well. So it's also about this uh, balance. Uh, this is why, like for each coverage, uh, its own challenges. There are lots of similarities uh, with, I mean, war zones or difficult uh, countries, but I would say, yeah, uh, for each coverage, its own challenges. Uh, in the US, uh, there are some coverage, um, yeah, more uh, 
more fun, let's say, than others. So the US covering the midterms, the challenge was to get to interview uh, Republican candidates in Atlanta. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, regarding the second question, <clears throat> what surprised me here, uh, two things. Uh, so I work for the public uh, media in France, and the way public media work in France is a bit different from here, especially with the financement of these public media. So when France were not at all used, uh, I mean, there is a different kind of relationship between the viewer, uh, the listener, and uh, the media itself. We're completely subsidized by the government or by the taxpayer, and uh, there's no advertising. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is what, what this was one of the discoveries uh, in the US, getting to know more about this particular way of uh, financing uh, media. Uh, the second thing is more about the First Amendment. We had uh, last week a very interesting lecture on the First Amendment, and I discovered lots of things. I used to think that France is the country of liberties, although we have in our slogan, uh, liberté, égalité, fraternité, uh, liberty is the first to be cited, discovered that uh, in the US, the boundaries are way uh, larger. And uh, this is a good thing, but it also had its uh, negative points, let's say. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, this is what I think about that. So, starting with surprises, um, we've been uh, visiting during our three weeks in the US, and we've visited a lot of different newsrooms, radio, newspaper, television. And I think one thing that surprised me and, and several of us was that. When we came to some of these newsrooms, they were kind of empty. And we were like, where is everyone? Uh, and the obvious answer was, of course, that people are working from, from home remotely. Uh, and I think that was a bit of a surprise for me because I think almost everyone, let's say 80, 90% of the workforce has, has returned to the, the newsroom and the offices. And I think one main reason there is that we just realized that so much of that interaction gets lost. I don't know, maybe also because commuting work is very easy in our country. And I realize that you have long, some of you have real long trips to, to your workplace. Um, but then regarding uh, journalism in Finland, I mean, I'm happy to say that we enjoy a lot of uh, respect uh, and press freedom in Finland. Actually, we are, according to the Press Freedom Index by, by um, Reporters Without Borders, we are in the top five, and we've been there in the top five always, actually. Uh, we also have, uh, I think, quite a lot of resources for, for the big media. We also have a very active audience, so we read a lot of newspapers and we have people actively engaging in, in news stories. We also teach uh, media literacy to our children, actually, starting from the age of seven. Uh, so it's, it's in that sense, you could, I could stop there and say uh, everything is perfect. And I'm <laughs> Next speaker, please. Uh, some light of things that worry us. Um, one main thing I would say is um, in Finland, as you know, we have an 800 mile border with Russia. And I think this really affects a lot of, of our policies, foreign policies, and also journalism in the sense that issues regarding uh, defense issues, like defense in general, and also foreign issues, are, are very sensitive. Um, 
And this means that it's, it's quite complicated to really report on these things and get information from authorities. Uh, we are now in just a couple of months joining NATO, uh, which will also change our foreign policy quite radically because Finland has had a non-alignment policy for basically until one year ago, just shortly after the uh, war in Ukraine started when we then applied for NATO membership. Uh, and, and I think this will even more uh, put like more spotlight on, on defense issues. Um, and I can just shortly mention that we, in January this year, two reporters working for the main newspaper in, in Finland, uh, Helsinki Sanomat, were sentenced to fines because they were reporting on defense issues and the crime that was called uh, spreading or, or publishing uh, top secret documents. Uh, even the story itself wasn't very surprising, but, but just this was actually like the president and the government and the police force basically attacked the newspaper and said you can't publish any information like that. So that is an issue that really is, I think, in general, worrying us journalists in Finland. To be a journalist in Bulgaria nowadays, it's really interesting. To be a political reporter in Bulgaria, it's more interesting. <laughs> because for two years, we've got every single year elections. And in 2021, we've got three times elections. Because, I don't know, our politicians can't speak the same language, probably. Uh, the truth is uh, that in uh, our last parliament there were seven parties and they were so different. So they couldn't make a coalition and after one week there will be new elections in my country. And we all hope that there will be a government now because the people of Bulgaria need that government. Not only because of the war, it's because of the crimes, for example, so people and business, they really need help from our government. Uh, when we are talking about the war in Ukraine, we are only 500 kilometers away from Ukraine. And right, right now, the biggest question in my country is to be or not to be, to give or not to give weapons to Ukraine. Uh, today, uh, leaders in European Union decided in, the, in Brussels to send weapons to Ukraine, one million shells. Only Bulgaria will not send weapons to Ukraine directly. So uh, we can send weapons to another country, another member of European Union or NATO, and that country can give the weapons to Ukraine. Why? Because some politicians in our country are thinking that um, if we give weapons to Ukraine, we will be involved in that war, and that will be not good for, for us. Another are on the opposite uh, position. Maybe that's why we can have good or we can have coalition right now in, in, in our country. And we have another problem to solve, and that are refugees. Right now, we've got two groups of refugees in Bulgaria from Ukraine. Our borders are open for refugees from Ukraine. We've got 19,000 refugees. But when you're speaking about the refugees from Syria and Afghanistan, the situation is not the same. 
our borders are closed for them. So there is some kind of business across the border between Turkey and Bulgaria. And two weeks before camp here in the United States, um, there was one big truck with 45 refugees inside traveling from um, Bulgaria-Turkey border to Bulgaria-Serbian border and 18 of them dead. So that's why we are not part of Schengen. We are waiting to be a part of, of Schengen. I don't know when it will happen, but we have problems to solve uh, before that. And about um, our media freedom and here in, in the United States, that's the, my first time uh, here. What can I say? My whole apartment is big as my last room at the hotel. So, <laughs> but when we were speaking about media, I'm working for public broadcaster, so we take money from government. Uh, is there pressure? Probably. I never feel pressure on me. That's why I'm still working that. Uh, but right now in that month with elections, that month before the elections, I call that month the month of propaganda. Because um, as a public broadcaster, the rules in Bulgaria are so every politicians can pay to our media and can be on there. So we can do nothing. And no one wanted to change our rules to protect us, to protect journalists, to protect the viewers from propaganda. So that's why uh, our viewers are less in that month before before the elections. And it was really interesting to me to, to hear how here uh, existing without money from government and about freedom of the press. Um. Just to remind us from Brazil, and uh, we are really similar. There's not much difference in uh, Brazil and United States, uh, incredible similar in many ways. When it comes to news, you guys have some channels who are leaning towards a radical left, radical right, and see. Censorship. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we guys have this uh, channel leaning towards a radical right. We have that too, and uh, we have some journalists. They call themselves journalists, saying that it was fraud in the last election. We have that too. So yeah, we are facing problems with fake news, polarization, all of that. I think the main difference would be that Brazil has a huge problem with corruption and violence. Some of you might have heard that last year, two journalists um, were killed. One of them was covering the Amazon. The issues connected to native people and protecting the environment, the forest. And those guys with Don Phillips, he's a British journalist. He was killed, killed while doing his work. And some might say that he, some people felt that he could do it because we had the government who was taking care of the forest, not the native people. Recently, we found out that there's a native tribe that was part to that 
literally spiral. If you see the pictures, they're shocking. You can see the bones. And then you had people going to this area of the forest and taking gold, exploring the forest, taking the wood without anything to stop them. So they feel entitled they could do it because we had a government we didn't take care of that. So we had this violence issue. We had a government recently who was more worried about lowering the number of people who could get into university if they're part of a minority group that could be like being black or any other kind of minority. So we have quotas, especially for black people, they can get to university. We have a government who was saying that women should wear uh, pink, men should wear blue. We have a government who was worried about people being allowed to buy guns, how many, how many guns they could get it. A government who was worried about lowering the age people should be taken to jail. And we're talking about country in which you had 40,000 people killed last year, and that is a record low for Brazil, a record low in 10 years, 40,000 people, that's more than a million people a day. We're also talking about that last year, Brazil went back to the map of hunger, which we left in 2014, 2022, we went back to the map of hunger. We're talking about more than 33 million people with hunger. They don't have enough food to eat, proper food to eat. So yeah, we face pretty much the same challenge, but we, we managed to do it worse. <laughs> so my colleague from Pakistan, Sakir, constantly says that my country is boring. <laughs> and I have very luckily enough. <laughs> I haven't faced any threats to my life as a journalist, and I haven't been censored in any way, and I'm extremely grateful for that. But what I have experienced in Australia is what I think is the Americanization of politics. So Melbourne was the most locked down city in the world, and I covered some COVID protests, 100,000 people taking to the streets protesting against lockdowns and vaccines. And while I was doing that, I had someone come up to me and my cameraman scream fake news in our faces and spit on us while I was doing this. Now, the ABC is the most trusted news organization in Australia. And that was just, I've never experienced anything like that. That was just really shocking to me. And I keep questioning how on earth did that make it, that language, that accusation make its way all the way from the US to Australia. And I have been asking a lot of people since I've been here and I haven't quite found the answer to that yet. Um, but there are many similar, while there are many similarities between the US and Australia, there are also a lot of differences that I'm learning since I've been here. And one of the things that stood out to me is the polarization that a couple of my colleagues have mentioned, and also um, the partisan media here. Obviously, we've heard about Fox on the far right, we've heard about left wing um, media organizations as well. And, while we have those in Australia, we definitely don't have that to the extent, to the same extent that you do have it here. So I work for the National Broadcaster. We are completely taxpayer funded. Some of my colleagues have mentioned um, how we've learned about how the differences are that your public broadcasters are funded here. And a, a few questions might be, well, if you're funded by the government, how is there no influence um, for the government? How, how are we not influenced by the government? But in Australia, um, the government changes. And we also have really strict editorial guidelines at the ABC. So when I covered the federal election last year, 
we have to record every second of airtime that we get our politicians during the election for the six weeks of the election to then publish to our audience so that we are transparent. So that's one way that we, uh, I guess, are more accountable to our audiences. And that's something that only the national broadcaster in Australia does. And we feel like we should do that because the taxpayers pay for us um, for our work. Um, another issue in Australia that is something that's happening all over the world is obviously the rise in misinformation and disinformation. Um, there was a study done in Australia and 80% of adults said that during COVID that they experienced um, misinformation. Um, and so this year, actually, Australia introduced laws to try to combat um, misinformation and disinformation. So we've introduced laws that will compel the big tech companies like Facebook and Twitter to actually share data on how that they how they are handling misinformation and disinformation. So that's just some of the things that we're doing in Australia. Well, I'll start with the kind of shining side of it. We're doing pretty good in the freedom of speech uh, ranking. We are 29, which is a pretty good spot for us in Argentina because we are doing pretty bad in other rankings such as uh, poverty, inflation, transparency. We are doing pretty good, pretty good in soccer. We are the That's a good thing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Dar. <laughs> um, but we do face uh, a lot of challenges as journalists, and we find I found it uh, found it here talking with a lot of colleagues so far, and it's polarization. You talked a lot about that. Um, that's because I think it's going all across the world. And in the case of Argentina, you can really see the divideness not only in in media but also in politics and in the society itself so it's really hard for us to do journalism properly when we for instance in my newspaper we are not aligned with the government and it's really hard to get some kind of information and also we we had the president spokesperson and also ministers attacking us openly, and also colleagues from another newspaper that are aligned with the government attacking us. Um, so I hope it, we find a solution, but I see it really hard, especially this year we have elections, and that makes the hate even bigger. And the thing is that we see that people now, and that happens here in the US as well, as a side notice, people now read only the things that are aligned to their ideology and watch the uh, TV stations that, that are aligned to their ideology. So for instance, in the TV stations that are aligned with the government, you can only see uh, official statements and stuff. And in the other way, in the opposition TV channels, uh, you only see opposition leaders. So. That's a big challenge that we as journalists are really worried about, and we are hoping that to change. Um, and the other, uh, the, the other challenge is the huge economic crisis we are going through in Argentina. Uh, last week, we surpassed the 100% inflation year to year. It was 102, actually. Uh, it's really hard to do practically anything. In that context for any uh, company 
and also for media companies, you know. And in my case, that I work in international news, it's really hard to do, for instance, a budget to go abroad to cover international news when we have, for instance, a lot of uh, exchange rates. We have an official exchange rate, but you can't access to that. And we have, uh, we call it uh, the dollar blue, that is the one in the parallel market, that is the double, double price than the official rate. So it's really hard to plan almost anything in my private life, in my professional life, without um, context. And we are going also through a huge growth. We, as Josia um, said, we are also a rich country in terms of soil because we have a lot of food we can export, but it's really hard, not only because of the tax, uh, the, the export tax we have now for the agricultural sector, but also because of the drought that will cost us three points of the GDP. So um, we we are not like exempt of the consequences of that economic crisis in Argentina. And as I said, we are having uh, elections this year. So we have disagreement with the IMF. We have to cover some um, money we have to give them. And they are asking us in Argentina actually the government, uh, for some austerity measures. But you know, when you're campaigning, you don't, you don't <laughs> do austerity measures. So it's a hard situation also with the IMF. And uh, I know that in Washington, they are worried as well about us paying that, that debt. Thank you so much for sharing. It's remarkable to see the similarities, the differences. Um, and in just about the last 15 minutes or so that we have here, I want to make sure we get to just a few of these great uh, questions from the audience. They weren't softball questions. <laughs> they were pretty uh, serious questions, but uh, obviously everyone won't have time to answer. But Leanna, since you um, just were talking about drought and, you know, different things that are going on in different parts of the world, sometimes it feels like, you know, uh, the U.S. might be making headlines across the world, but one of the questions from the audience was, what advice or observations do you all have to improve America's coverage of events and issues in other countries? <laughs> and we have 10 minutes, so. <laughs> oh, I think I'm, I'm saying this as an editor of the Foreign Press, that the best way is being in the plate. I mean, I read an article like a month ago I think it was, I can't remember, but it was a, a magazine here in the US. And it was just a person from the US that has just got in Argentina and he had this trouble about the uh, exchange uh, rate. Like, I didn't know where to go. So if you go to Argentina, please ask someone because it's really difficult. And it's, and you saw, you see that it's been there and it happened to me when. As an international reporter, I went to, for instance, in Venezuela when there were the protests in 2017. And I remember I took a picture because I went and, and I changed, uh, I think it was $200, and they gave me like this of bills. And of course, I, I wasn't there to talk about that, but it was like impressive. So I took a picture and posted it in my social media. And that is what is happening with most of the people who are coming to Argentina now. 
So I think that uh, my advice would be like, be there, visit the countries, stay in the countries, and also have that eye to still be impressed by things because it's what people want to want to know. Does anyone else have anything quickly to? For America to stay in coverage in Pakistan, we have to do only one thing: bring back Trump. You win. You stay in our coverage. <laughs> Okay, uh, moving on. Um, so one thing that we, we talked about a little bit was disinformation. I'm curious for those who you know cover this, what can be done to counter the effects of disinformation? Okay, I always tell people that it's a war and we are losing the disinformation war at this point in time. Um, but what I would tell people is, Target would, he wouldn't agree with me because I tell people to educate themselves on what disinformation is and how to easily spot it. That's the only advice I can give people. Um, because with technology, disinformation keeps evolving. It's, it just keeps spreading and spreading. It's so widespread that you would come across it and you would just breeze through and you won't even know it's disinformation. There are so many videos you see deep fakes that are so real and so authentic that you would not believe if anyone told you they are computer generated videos. So many fake images, so many artificial intelligence, just a lot of things you know are going on behind the scenes. So educate yourself on what disinformation is know what disinformation trends are, know the people that are spreading this or that are susceptible to spreading this and you may, you may win the war. I don't know. Yes, please. I want to uh, talk about uh, something that happened in my country. I think they'll be useful what we are talking about. Uh, Recently, Sri Lanka had a um, uh, public protest, which resulted the president, the prime minister, the cabinet to step down. Everyone, almost everyone in our country took to the streets, not because of, not against a particular party, but against uh, the practice of corruption, uh, bribery, uh, uh, without having accountability uh, against the police, against government service. So everybody was in the street, including myself. After this uh, revolution, I would say, I have uh, seen that Sri Lankans are more aware. Let's say it can be your most favorite journalist, it can be your uh, most favorite TV channel, but people are questioning now, even journalists. So I would say, uh, question, question everything you, you see. Ask why, uh, even if it is Washington Post, even if it is New York Times, even if it is the most award-winning journalist, question them and see, because we don't know what, um, as I just said about the previous story, this, story was reported by the most trusted media companies in the world in my country 
most lower penny. The question that I don't trust just because uh, maybe the organization is saying this is true or this is not. Sure, anyone else have anything to add on combating disinformation on that front? Okay, it's a big task. Uh, well, this, this is a nice and positive question, uh, hopeful. <laughs> what are some of the, well, you know, it's good to, we're ending on a hopeful note, I think that's good. What are some of the bright spots that you see in journalism, uh, either in your country or internationally? What makes you hopeful for the future of journalism? <laughs> it comes to hope, don't come to journalism. Yeah, yeah. Against your group of journalists. Alex, your turn. <laughs> Brian Finland. <laughs> it's a bit of a joke, but I have to be the positive one. Now. <laughs> um, I mentioned already, I'm in media literacy and teaching that to really young people, I mean, seven year olds, eight year olds, people who, children who will become the, the consumers of media very soon or are actually at the age of seven or eight. Uh, and I think, I mean, I, I, I don't have children myself, but I, I've been to uh, high schools and, and, and colleges, the main high schools in Finland. I've talked to students when I was 15, 16, and I am amazed by their really tricky and good questions. And I, they do think about the sources, what the journalists, how, how we as journalists are choosing our topics. Uh, they really, I think, many of them have a very good understanding of, of media and that media is not the truth at all. It's just like one angle, maybe maybe a good angle, but not definitely not the only one. So I, that is something I think is very encouraging. And I, I also like that we, the established media, so to say, are, are, um, are questioned. And I think one thing we should be, do, be doing more as, as uh, representatives of big media Houses is that we should be more open about why we choose to report on certain topics and be kind of more transparent when it comes to, to how we think, why we chose to talk to certain people, why we chose not to talk, talk to certain people. And also, yeah, the topics, why, why do we discuss this thing? Why do we make this interviews and not that the other thing? And I think I spent it in my country see quite a lot of young people who question us from that point of view. And I think it's very important. <laughs> Uh, I thought I would not uh, disagree with anyone tonight, but I might have to again. Because I think hope stems from the fact that people don't question us and they take our word for it as it is. If somebody sees my byline on a story, my hope is that one day they would realize that that's his name on the story and he could have written that too. And that's the hope that I have in the journalism. Also, you know, to expect people to be media literate. I think uh, first challenge has to be the media to be literate itself. To expect the public to be media literate is like a utopian idea. I mean, you can't have everybody have those skill sets to define, you know, to distinguish between an opinion and a fact. You, you cannot have that. It's like, you know, dreaming um, for a world where, you know, everything is fine. It's not going to happen. So I think our challenge and my hope is that one day we would be a media house or a media entity that when we publish something, people would not question us. People would say that that's the truth. And that's the hope that we need to find. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that right now. I'm a very cynical person, but we, we don't have the truth right now. 
sorry, just to take us back a little to disinformation, I just needed to point out that as disinformation journalists, one of our major roles is to tell people how we were able to tell its disinformation. So uh, for me in the BBC, my role is not just to investigate information trends and campaigns, but to also point out to my audience that this is how I was able to tell it's a disinformation trend or a disinformation campaign and how I was able to investigate it. And I think it's very important and it builds trust. Transparency, news literacy, very important. Dan, did you have something? I uh, want to try to finish happy. <laughs> I think in the age of fake news, in the age that democracy is under attack, the Supreme Court is under attack, ministers, justice. I think the future for journalists in the news is quite bright in the sense that we have a lot of work to do because we are the ones who need to stand up for democracy and justice when everyone is under attack, including us. So I guess we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I see. I see a beautiful play. Yeah, very briefly, I would say that uh, what makes me optimistic would be to continue on fulfilling what journalism is about, uh, about informing people uh, and impacting them in a way or another through the works, through the information, through the uh, delivery in a truthful way. What is uh, happening in the world when uh, covering wars, covering atrocities, uh, getting getting the world to know what's happening in every corner uh, of the globe, and thus uh, really impacting and contributing into some changes. And what makes me optimistic is, yeah, continuing to to, to work on uh, these goals. Uh, and for the moment, we as a French public media uh, are doing this and hopefully will continue doing this without uh, any other pressures. What makes me optimistic about being here in the US is visiting universities and the amount of journalists, student journalists that want to study uh, journalism has been surprising to me. In Australia, since the pandemic, there's been distrust in the media. TV stations closing down in regional areas, newspapers closing down, not a lot of funding and not really a lot of hope for journalism and we're not really paid that well, so that doesn't help either. <laughs> um, but so that's universal. <laughs> <laughs> but we did hear from a lot of students about and lecturers about the Trump effect and that's after they saw Donald Trump in power, that caused a lot of students to then study journalism because they were going to hold people like Donald Trump in power. So it's not all bad news. <laughs> All right, and I think we're going to end it there. It's not for the faint of heart, but your work is critical and we appreciate you so much for sharing with us. And yeah, you're all just brilliant. I'm a fan. <laughs>